Matthew chapter 24, where we left off the last time at verse 45, begins the second of four parables that the Lord gives to His disciples during this discourse that we call the Olivet Discourse. A rather lengthy section of Scripture reported, uh, according to Matthew, given by Jesus after they had been in Jerusalem and they had asked Him questions regarding the end, uh, end times after He had just explained to them that the temple that they were looking at that they thought were so wonderful, beautiful, and majestic would be torn down stone by stone and not one stone would be left standing on the other. They asked Him, well, when will these things be? And because they thought that His return to be the king would be imminent, immediate. They said not only that, they asked, and when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Those three questions were being answered by Jesus in this Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And again, he's ending that discourse after having explained very specific details with regard to the Jewish people for the end days, what they were to expect, tying it with Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, where Daniel spoke of 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven, a total of 490 years in which the Lord would be directly impacting the people of God, the Jewish nation. Daniel was told by Gabriel that these things are spoken for your people, and Daniel's people were the Jews. They were given specifically with regard to that one group of individuals known as the Jewish nation. It applies still today for all of those things that Daniel has spoken with regard to those things pertaining to the nation of Israel have indeed been fulfilled up till the very last seven week, or seven-year period, I should say. And that seven-year period is still future, and Jesus addressed that future aspect of that prophecy of Daniel in this discourse. You may remember that Jesus warned the Jews that when that day comes, there would be one who would come and stand in the midst of the temple, proclaiming himself to be God, defiling the temple, and that will indeed take place during the period of time that we refer to as the time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah, the tribulation, given that name by Jesus himself, that seven-year period that is still yet to occur, but will soon begin, we believe. Because among those things that Jesus said with regard to those events, he said, you should be watching There should be signs that you will be able to observe with regard to the end days so that you will know that those are the times. And one of the most specific of those specific details that Jesus gave had to do with, again, the nation of Israel. Because he talks about this fig tree that will blossom as an example of what can be expected by those who are living in that day and that Reference to the fig tree is indeed a reference to the nation of Israel. You can look at chapters 36 and 37 of the book of Ezekiel and see where Ezekiel prophesied that there would be a coming day when that 
people, Jews, would be gathered together in their land. That was prophetic as far as Ezekiel was concerned. It was an amazing statement because the Jews were in the land when he spoke those words. But we know from historic facts that the Jews were taken out of that land. They were dispersed in 70 A.D. They were no longer a nation that had its own land. They were taken out of that area that we know of today as Israel, and they were dispersed throughout the world by the Roman Empire. And they were not only dispersed, but they were persecuted. All of those almost 2,000 years, they were living outside of their land. They were distributed all over the world, and yet they retained their nationality. There is no other nation that has ever accomplished such a thing. They retained not only their nationality, their ethnicity, their language, and then they came back into the land according to Ezekiel because they were dried bones that God put together and put flesh upon them and gave breath to them and they became alive and they dwelt in the land. That was the promise of Ezekiel. It's also spoken of in the Old Testament that that land would be barren for a long period of time and it certainly was. If you have ever read the writings of Mark Twain, he visited Israel in the late 1800s and he wrote about that visit. He said it's the most barren place on earth that he has ever been to. He couldn't even come up with one soul that he saw in that land when he went through that territory. No trees. It was barren. It was fruitless. It was empty. And then in 1948, the Jews were invited to come back to the land and they came back in large numbers. They wanted their homeland back. And what did they do? They were professionals. They were doctors and musicians. They came in large numbers, not having known anything about agricultural requirements of feeding such a large group of people by planting crops. And what could they do with that terrible place? It was swampy. There was malaria. There were all kinds of things that were against them. It was a very rocky place. But yet they built back that land to what it is today, a very fruitful nation. Just exactly as the Old Old Testament prophets declared. It would become fruitful. It would become a place where they would be able to live and and, uh, enjoy the prosperity. And God has definitely blessed them. But there's something still lacking for the people of God, the Jews. They haven't yet come to know their Savior. And that's still a future event. That's still something that will take place. They will be able once more to not only live in the land, but to be revived as a people spiritually. That's yet to come. That's God's goal. But there's much that will have to take place between now and that day. But Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah in chapters 12, 13, and 14 of that great prophet book, tell of those things. And they will come a day, although only a third of the Jews then present on the ground of Israel, only one-third of them will survive that terrible event known as the tribulation. But that one-third will be the remnant that will survive, and they will see Christ Himself standing on the Mount of Olives, and they will look upon Him whom they have pierced, and He will pour out His Spirit upon them. That's in fulfillment of Joel, the prophet Joel, Chapter 2. In the end days, those things will take place. Jesus has 
given great information for us as we put all of those Scriptures together and realize that we are in the last days. We see the signs. And again, the greatest sign of all is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. So now Jesus, after having said all of those things about future events, has begun to give us parables, information that is wrapped up in a picture story about specific things that they could understand, but he wanted them to understand it from a spiritual point of view, a perspective that they did not have. And the best way for them to understand those spiritual things was to lay alongside that truth, that spiritual truth, with something that they were familiar with. And so that first parable that we looked at the last time was a parable of the fig tree. This next parable that we'll be looking at is another parable. That fig tree parable... And then the following verses that talked about the master of the house not knowing whether the thief would come at one hour or the, or the next. That parable emphasized the need to be watchful. If the master of the house knew what time the thief was coming, then there would be no problem. The thief would never be able to enter in. He gave that parable as an example to those who are waiting for the return of Christ to be watchful. Because you don't know what time he'll return. That's an important statement that Jesus has made. It replies, it applies to us as a believers in this church age. Every one of us should be indeed watchful as Jesus instructed, watching for that day, knowing that we have signs that have been given to make it so that we can be aware of the times in which we live. Be watchful. He went on in that parable to talk about the conditions of that day. Two men would be in the field. One would be taken and the other left. Two women would be grinding at the mill. One would be taken and the other left. He's talking about what we call the rapture of the church. There is coming a day when there will be a departure of the church from this earth. And those who are left behind will be in terrible distress. So the time is near and people need to be aware of the fact that these things will take place because all of what God has spoken has already been fulfilled and whatever has not yet been fulfilled will indeed be. I emphasize more than once over the course of my time here as a pastor of this church that what God has accomplished throughout the history of mankind is to show us that He is always perfectly on time and everything that He has spoken with regard to any prophetic things have been fulfilled. He bats a hundred, a thousand rather. He bats a thousand. He's never ever missed the pitch. There's more to come. Do you realize that the Bible itself is full of prophecy to the extent that about 25 to 27 percent of the entire Word of God is prophetic? God had told Isaiah, I have told you things to come so that you can know that I am God. There's nobody else that has done such a thing as what God has done through His prophets. You can't give Gene Dixon that kind of percentage rate. You can't give Nostradamus that kind of percentage rate. Oh, they are considered to be prophets by the world, but don't you ever think of them as prophets of God. They are not. But God's prophets, those who spoke for God, spoke accurately at the risk of their own lives, because in the Jewish culture, 
If a prophet spoke, thus saith the Lord, and what that prophet said did not come true, then that prophet would be stoned. There was a constraint upon those who would be thinking themselves as prophets of God. That's not so today. Oh, people are free to talk all they want about what they consider to be prophetic utterances. Be careful. Be discerning. Make sure that you understand the Word of God because there are prophets who are going to be in the last days. They are spoken of by the Lord and by Peter and by Paul. They are going to be in a perilous time, which is now, speaking falsehood. And we need to understand what is correct by knowing what God's Word says. So that's why we're here, to study God's Word, to know what God has spoken. So when Jesus is speaking on these things, He's giving us information that we need to apply and we need to understand. And more than once, He said to His disciples, I'm giving you this so that you can understand. That's what He's saying to you and I today, through this very Word. Therefore, he said in verse 44, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus had said elsewhere, keep looking up, your redemption draws near. Paul said, we're closer today than we were, and that's pretty obvious. Every day that passes, we're one day closer to that day than we were when we first believed. Paul anticipated, Peter anticipated, John and James anticipated the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, yeah, but he never did return, did he? They were wrong, weren't they? No, they weren't wrong. They were told to wait, and they did, exactly as they were told, and so should we. The fact that he has not come yet does not at all impact the veracity of what Jesus said and all of the other prophets have spoken. Before we read verse 45 following in chapter 24, let's take a look at what Peter tells us. In Second Peter, chapter 3, I'm going to read ten verses or nine verses of that portion of Scripture because it's so very important and it is pertinent to what we are going to be looking at today in Matthew's Gospel. Peter says in chapter 3, verse 1 of Second Peter, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. That's important. You know, we do need to be reminded of things, don't we? We need to have repetition of things that we need to know so that we can... Make sure that they are embedded in our minds and in our hearts. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's saying, I want you to remember these things. He says in verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's the attitude of people today. What do you mean He's coming for His church? That's what my grandmother used to say. That's ridiculous. Nothing's taking place that implies any of that. Well, that's because their eyes are closed to what they're seeing or should be seeing around the world today. But if you have your eyes open, that would be in your mind, I hope, 
a very false statement because it is not true. All things are not the same as they were. However, that's the attitude that many people have today. And that's what Peter was saying is going to be the case in the last days. That's the attitude people would have with regard to the things of God. Where is the promise of His coming? Then verse 5, he says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed also perished, being flooded with water. He's referring to the flood of Noah. Well, the world today, they think the story of Noah is a myth, for the most part. Well, if there was really an ark, how come we haven't found the ark? Well, that was a long, long time ago. There had been reports, by the way, of people having found that ark. But the Turkish government won't allow anyone to go up to the top of that mountain to investigate that. I wonder why. Since the creation, and they willfully forget. Notice they willfully forget. They know what they've been told but they don't believe what they've been told. He says in verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We'll see Jesus speaking of those things in this passage that we're looking at this morning. And beloved, do not forget this one thing, and this is key. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter pulls out of Psalm 90 the passage that Moses spoke with regard to God's perspective of time. With God, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day or a watch in the night, Moses has said. Peter quotes a portion of that to let us be mindful of the fact that, hey, so what if almost 2,000 years have passed? That's nothing as far as God's concerned when you're living a timeless existence as God does, then what's a few more years to Him? What's a few more years to us? But all throughout the Scriptures, in the book of Psalms especially, we see the psalmist writing, Oh Lord, how long? We can be kind of impatient, waiting, but God's Word says, just wait on the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. That's important. Peter continues and says, Behold, do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. And the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. That's why this hasn't been such a long time for God, because He wants to save souls. That's His purpose. He says it's not His will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's the reason why He hasn't come, because there's still room in His house. And He wants His house full. There is coming a time when, according to the Word of God, the time of the Gentiles will be complete, and the fullness of Gentiles will have come in. That time is very near. That's what the church age has been for, to bring in more and more people from all over the world into the family of God. That has been accomplished, but it's not over yet. There's still work to be done. That's why the church is still here. But when that work has been completed, when the fullness of Gentiles is come in, then will come that day when the church will no longer be needed in this world. And when we're taken out, then God's Holy Spirit will focus on the people of God, the Jews, over the course of the next 1,007 years of their existence. 
Back to Matthew, chapter 24, verse 45. Jesus again is speaking to His disciples. He's giving this parable. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom His Master made ruler over His household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom His Master, when He comes, finds Him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that He will make Him ruler over all His goods. But... If that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him this portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is severe. That's very, very severe. What Jesus is saying here is that the servant who says the Lord delays his coming and because of that he begins to carouse, he begins to be a drunkard and sin with all the sinners around him and enjoying the pleasures of this life, thinking that the Lord is going to delay his coming. He is mistaken. In this parable, Jesus is saying, you need to be faithful. This servant was given great responsibility to minister to those who were with him, serving his master. Note that the Lord says in verse 46, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Be faithful in what God has given you to do, whatever that is, whether it's at work, at home, wherever you are serving the Lord, whatever God has put on your plate, do it with a heart for Him, for His glory. Serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be faithful. That's the message of this parable. The servant that he describes was not faithful. And the result of his unfaithfulness was unbelief, and it turned into a result of casting away that servant into outer darkness. The next parable, chapter 25, verse 1. A very similar parable, in a sense, but it's from a different perspective. Again, Jesus used things that they were familiar with to express a spiritual concept that they needed to grasp. And in this next parable, Jesus is going to be talking about what they all were familiar with with regard to a bridegroom coming for his bride. In the Hebrew culture, it was very typical for the parents of a man and woman at a very early age for that man and woman, usually in their uh, uh, adolescent years or early teens, the parents would decide he is going to marry her. They get together. Maybe the fathers are good buddies and they say, well, your daughter is really a a very attractive young lady, and my son is of good age for her, so perhaps we should arrange for them to be married. And the other father says, well, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So they get the families together, and there's an agreement made. And the potential husband and wife are brought together at that time, and they're given hardly any options with regard to that choice. It's the choice of their parents. They respected their parents' And they honored their parents' wishes. That was typical. 
There are other times when a young man might come to the father of a woman saying, you know, I really am deeply attracted to your daughter and I want to arrange to pay you a dowry for your daughter's hand. That also took place. But the result of either of those conditions was that there was an espousal, a period of time when they would be legally bound, not as husband and wife yet, but they were betrothed. They were espoused to be married, and it was as solid as any marriage contract that we have today. It only could be broken by a letter of divorcement. And if there was any hanky-panking going on by either of those two during that period of espousal, then they were subject to the law of Moses, which meant caught in adultery, stoned them. So there wasn't very many changes in that decision by either of the two that were getting married. They were espoused to be married. Joseph and Mary were espoused to be married. But Joseph found Mary to be pregnant. That became a problem for Joseph. Do you see why? Well, because he didn't want to have her stoned. He wanted to put her away privately. Because he loved her. And it was the Holy Spirit by the angel of God coming to him in a dream that told him, Joseph, take Mary to be your wife. That which is in her is the Holy One of God. And you will name Him Jesus. You know the story. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Mary was the mother of Jesus. Not the mother of God, but the mother of Jesus. And there is a difference, there is a distinction. Listen. What Jesus is saying in this parable that we're going to be looking at now is so very important because the tradition in the Jewish world in that day was that sometime during that period of time that was known as the espousal, the bridegroom would go and prepare a place usually at his father's house, for the bridal chamber. An elaborate place, a place that he would be proud to present his bride in to the wedding feast guests. So there was much need for that bridegroom to take special care over a period of time, usually about a year, that he would make ready for that wonderful occasion where the wedding would take place, and the consummation of the marriage would take place within that vital chamber. That was the responsibility of the bridegroom. The responsibility of the bride was to wait. And she would gather together a group of young ladies, most of which, I believe, would have been unmarried, so they would have been virgins, and they would be with her as her bridal party, waiting for the arrival unbeknownst to them when that time would be of the bridegroom. Jesus alludes to that in John's Gospel, by the way, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel. He said, you believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also. What did Jesus say to his disciples in that passage? I'm your bridegroom and I am preparing the bridal chamber and when I have finished that, I will come and get you and you will be brought to the place where I am and there we shall ever be with the Lord. That's the promise. That was something that no Jew ever, ever considered as a likelihood. 
They believed that God was coming to reign on the earth and they would live on the earth. But Jesus is saying, you're going to be with me in heaven. That's completely different than what they were expecting. That's the church. That's the promise of believers in Christ. So now, take a look with me at verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 25 where it says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, Jesus says, after having spoken this parable, he's now speaking directly to his disciples, to you and I. Watch, therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Again, he reiterates the fact that there is coming a day when he will suddenly appear. Now, I submit to you that that is a reference again to the rapture of the church and not his appearing upon the earth. That appearing, that glorious appearing, will take place at the end of the tribulation period. The rapture of the church, I believe, more sincerely than ever before I commit myself to this fact, I believe it is fact, he's coming for us before he pours out his wrath on the world. The pre-tribulation rapture of the church, that means before the seven-year period of tribulation begins, we'll be out of here. That's what I believe is on God's timeline next. It may be that, it may be the Ezekiel War that I've spoken of often, but either one of those can and should, I believe, will take place before the seven-year period of tribulation begins. I know there are alternate, alternate opinions. I welcome anyone to sit here and attend our services here and know that if you have a different opinion, you are still welcome here. However, it is what I believe. It is what I teach. It is what I propose that all of us should study God's Word and see for yourselves whether these things be so. But Jesus gives again the warning. Watch, therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. In chapter 24, after having given the parable of the fig tree and talking about the master watching for the thief to come, it is there that he said, Be watchful. The faithful servant turning into an evil servant. The warning is to be faithful. 
The warning here in this parable of the ten virgins is to be ready. You see, there were ten virgins. Five got themselves prepared. They were ready for his return. They had ready beside them a vessel filled with oil. Their lamps were trimmed. They were prepared. The other five, well, they had lamps that were trimmed, but they didn't have any extra oil. They were not prepared. The example is very obvious. If you just look at that component of this parable and don't try to spiritualize everything else that's in this parable, just know that what Jesus is giving here is a warning to be ready. Because those who were ready had enough oil to last. And that's why they could rest. That's why it says they were all slumbering. All ten were slumbering. The five who were ready were able to sleep knowing that they had prepared, that they were ready indeed. Those who were not prepared were able to sleep also. Why? Because they didn't think there was a need to be ready. Understand what Jesus is saying here. You can be either one or the other. You can be prepared. You can be ready. You can have your lamp filled. And by the way, that is a picture of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if any of you know this little tune. It's a Pentecostal tune that I used to sing back 35 more or more years ago. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep it burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Keep it burning until that day. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. You see what that song is saying? I am like one of the five virgins who was prepared. If I sing that song and believe it in my heart, then I have my lamp trimmed and I have my vessel filled and I am ready and I can rest knowing that He can come anytime, whether I'm awake or asleep, and I will be ready for that return. That's how I want to be. I want you to also be that way as well. Be one of the five virgins in this story that were prepared. Be ready. That's the message that Jesus wants to give to this people and to us today. But the foolish said, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to make up for lost time. They're trying to cover their sin of not being prepared. But the wise virgins who had been prepared also realized that if they gave of their resources, then there wouldn't be enough for them or the others. So they chose the right thing. They stayed in that which they had prepared for. And they were rewarded. They were allowed to come in. Notice he says, While they went to buy, those who didn't have enough oil, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. They went in. They were safe. They were secure. They were saved. The others came afterward. It says in verse 11, Afterward the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. They're calling Him Lord. Open to us, Lord. In another place, Jesus relates this terrible understanding of what 
will take place in the hearts of many people. Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not proclaim your word? Did we not walk among the people proclaiming that you are Christ? And yet it was only on the surface that they were doing so because Jesus then responds, I never knew you. You never had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are among those who are without oil in your lamp. That's the plain truth of God's Word. Jesus is clear, as clear can be. There are two kinds of people upon this earth. Those who are in and those who are not. And those who are in are those who believe in what He has done for you as a Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. There is no other. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to God but by Him. How much more plainly can Jesus speak? And yet they will not listen. They could have bought the oil when there was time. But now there's no more time left for them. The result is they left out. They could not enter in. And in verse 12 again, he says, he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be ready. Be faithful. Be watchful. Be filled with the Spirit. Again, that parable speaks of oil. And oil is indeed a picture of the Spirit of God. And with the oil that the Spirit of God provides, there is anointing, there is blessing. Titus, Paul writes about these very things in his letter to his friend Titus. In chapter 2, verse 13 of this very short epistle of Paul, he writes these words, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Purified. The Spirit of God does that purifying. That's what the holy anointing oil, oil was for. All the way back into the Levitical system that Moses established at Mount Sinai. The high priest was anointed by the special anointing oil. And in that anointing, he was purified to be of service to God as the high priest. Purifying process is what God is doing in those of us who believe. Elsewhere, Paul talks about it as a sanctification. Jesus mentioned that is through His Word of truth that we are being sanctified. Paul picks up on that very fact and says that that is a process that is happening to us as we serve Him day by day. Each day that passes, we should be more and more like Him. And in that process of establishing us in that way, 
we are being sanctified until the day comes when He comes for His church and then we will be glorified. We will be fully purified, made holy by the power of the Holy Spirit, by His presence in our lives, by His work in us and through us. John also speaks of that purification process in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 beginning with verse 2. John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. Why? For we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope, this blessed hope that was spoken of by Paul, that blessed hope of His appearing, of His coming for His church, we who have this hope in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. That's my goal in my life. I want that to be your goal as well. To be purified, made holy, filled with His Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon your life and upon mine. It's essential for living and continuing to serve our Master and Savior all the rest of our time on this earth. I want to finish with the final parable that Jesus gives in this last chapter, or this 25th chapter, rather, of Matthew's Gospel. So turn back with me to verse 14 of chapter 25. It's a rather lengthy parable, but it's really, really very important because there it tells us that we are not only to be watchful, that we are not only to be uh, faithful, we're not only to be ready, but we're to be profitable servants. Profitable in the sense that we benefit not only Him, but ourselves in our service to the King. Read with me, verse 14 says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents. Now, a talent is a measure. It's not a coin, it's a measure of weight. It's a very heavy measure, about 70 pounds. So if you're dealing with gold or silver, especially if it's gold talents, you're talking about an amazing amount of money. Billions of dollars worth was given to this servant. Now, that seems extravagant, and it is. Jesus uses that very, very out-of-mind kind of concept. That can't be. There's nobody that's that wealthy. That's because he wants the picture to be so driven into our minds. This, this, this is what God is doing in our lives. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. To each one he gave to that one's own ability. He doesn't put on your plate anything more than what you are able to handle. That's the promise of God's Word. But He expects you to handle what is put on your plate. That's the promise of God's Word. That's what this parable is all about. Be profitable. He goes on to say, in verse 16, Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. He was very profitable indeed. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. And he, likewise, was very profitable indeed. They both 
did with the resources that they were given by the master exactly as the master had expected. They were profitable. The third one, however, he who had received one, went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Did nothing with it. Did nothing with it. In case you didn't hear that, let me repeat it. He did nothing with it. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He was expecting them to do what they should have done, and two of them had done. It wasn't because they didn't realize, oh, I didn't know you wanted me to invest. I thought it was right for me to just hide it, and that would be good enough. You know, if you don't know God's Word, you might end up having that kind of attitude. Oh, this is good enough. Well, how much is enough for your salvation? How much can you do that would be enough to earn the right to come into God's presence? I submit to you that there is nothing you can do. But God gives responsibility to do those things that He sets on our plate to accomplish for His glory. And that's what is expected. Not so that you can enter in, but so that you can expect reward. Verse 20 says, So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Don't you want to hear those words from your Master? When you end your life in this world, when you breathe your last breath, you are going to be escorted into the presence of God. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, and you will stand before Him face to face, do you want to face Him ashamed? of what you had been doing or not doing? Or do you want to face Him with the wonderful expectation that you'll hear His voice speaking to you saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want. Verse 22 says, Okay, that's good. That guy had five. He gave the Lord a total of ten. Wonderful. Great amount of resources contributed back into the work, into the Master's household. Of course He was rewarded greatly for that. Well, verse 22 says, He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered me to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside them. Well, that's nowhere near what the other guy was able to accomplish. He was not at all as successful in his trading as the other guy was. So he, surely he couldn't expect to have any kind of extra blessing, could he? His Lord said to him, verse 23, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the kingdom, the joy of your Lord. Same blessing. You've done well with whatever God has given for you to do. Oh, make it plain in your mind, in your heart. You don't have to be successful the way the world looks at success. You just have to be successful the way God looks at success. And the way God looks at success is just simply doing what He asks you to do. And no matter what that might be, it might be as a pastor, it might be as a teacher, it might be as a Sunday school teacher, or mother at home, it might be a fellow worker in a a 
place where you can witness to others. Whatever it is that God has put on your plate, your neighbors, whatever, that's work that God has given to you and to me, and we are to be faithful in accomplishing that. That's why, in verse 24, then he who received the one talent, who could have very likely been as successful as the other two, who could have received the same wonderful blessing, the words of encouragement from the Master, well done, good and faithful servant, but because he did not do that which his Lord expected him. He said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. He's trying to put it back on the Master. I know your character. You're like this, and because you're like this, I decided it wouldn't be very helpful to you because, after all, you're a pretty scheming sort of person. Well, that certainly doesn't fit a description of God, but in this parable, what Jesus is saying is the guy that did nothing had excuses for not doing something. Don't let your life be filled with excuses. Verse 25 says, I was afraid, he says. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. Underline those words. Not only wicked, but lazy wicked. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have at least received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him. He's now speaking to the others. Give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Stark warning again, the Lord gives to us here. But finally, not only will he have nothing, but the result of his having nothing is that he's deemed to be a wicked, lazy servant who is no longer welcome. For in verse 30, Jesus ends this parable or this teaching with the same words that he ended the previous one. Cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be gnashing of teeth and weeping. Message is clear. Be watchful. Be faithful. Be ready. Be profitable. And when he comes, receive from your Lord the blessing that he has in store for you. Would you pray?